You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. I greet you this morning on Father's Day. Adding to Jim's uh, statement, Happy Father's Day. Just wanted to know, do they have a grandfather's day? Do they? I mean, serious, serious question. Do they? If they don't, why not? Because I happen to be a grandfather. And the way things are going, I don't think it'll be too very long before I become a great-grandfather. I'm really glad and happy to be here. I've got to do some prefacing before I speak. Uh, And that is... uh, I have been an evangelist all my life. I believe the Lord has affirmed it. And so I need to explain a little bit about my style, which is going to be very different from Tom. Uh, First of all, we are used to preaching long sermons, but I'm aware of, you know, when you're in Rome, do as Rome does and all that kind of stuff. And so I just told my daughter, in fact, today I might be extra short. I was so conscious of this, you know, on-time business. But you see, being an evangelist, there's a commitment to a purpose. And that's what my message is going to be about, because that's what's been assigned to me, preach on evangelism. The part of the way I fulfill my ministry of evangelism is through television. And in fact, last week, uh, I recorded right here in Des Moines to be sent back to India by Dropbox eight different um, uh, uh, broadcasts, 30 minutes each. So in the last couple of days, I have preached eight sermons. And the day before, another eight. I'm sorry, uh, the whole the previous week, another eight. Because I travel so much, it piles up, and so I calculated I'm doing the recording with a fellow called Eric Allen, who'll soon be a father. And uh, I've got to do a little over 100 recordings before I go back to India. And the biggest task of that uh, TV recording is, what do I preach? What topic will reach out to people who've never heard about Jesus? So my style of preaching then is almost purely evangelistic. Now... My country has changed tremendously. And we have what we call a culture of Hindutva. I won't go into all of that. But we've got a rabid Hindu government. We've got to be very careful what we say. You call it being politically correct. I will add on socially correct. And so back home when I'm on television, there's a disclaimer before my uh, sharing. The contents of this um, broadcast are not, uh, you know, the station is not, you know, not responsible, etc., etc. The one responsible is the presenter, the pro- all sorts. And I've got to be so conscious of what I say. Some of the programs I do, I do with a translator, and my translator once said, Sir, we could be arrested for what we are doing, for what we are saying. See, because Hinduism is, first of all, a monistic going on to pantheism, pantheistic, and then finally what is popular, polytheistic. 
And here I come with my message that says, there is only one God. The Lord, he is God. I'm automatically opposing a religion. One day somebody's going to take notice of that. I've got to say this, forgive me for saying it, that very often broadcasts that come from abroad are watered down to go along with the government. I will not do that. And so my preaching in India, this is part of the reason for this preface, my preaching in India is socially and politically incorrect. But I ask you, what else can I do? And so today, or this morning, I might venture into that area of being politically incorrect and socially incorrect. But I ask you the same question, what else can I do? In preparation for this message, this past week, I was reading about how in some places we should not ask the question, are you saved? Change those words, use something different. In some churches, it is not right to talk about evangelism. I'm going to keep that all aside and declare me socially incorrect or politically incorrect because a couple of reasons. One is, I'm going to preach the word of God. That's the only thing I know. And secondly, I'm leaving town in a month's time. So that's it. But, but, when I say about being incorrect and so on, I'm not saying I'm going to be offensive or anything like that. But the word of God has given us great details about what evangelism is. And I'm going to spend quite some time on the foundations of it. The theological foundations, which of course are the biblical foundations of it. Now, a normal reaction to a lot of my preaching in the United States of America is this. When I talk about missions, when I talk about evangelism, very often, and I've heard this personally, people have even told me, you are putting us on a guilt trip. I'm sorry about that. I don't intend to put anybody on a guilt trip. But if I don't take care of my children, I am guilty. Somehow in today's world, the word guilt, and I won't pursue this, it'll show my uh, uh, politics. Somehow in today's world, the word guilt has been reconnotated. And that's not mean what I think it means. Having said that, Let's go ahead, beginning with a question. And the question I'm asking is this, why does Gateway exist? Or to be more correct, why does the Gateway Church exist? Why do you exist? Which of course progressively leads to another question, why does the church exist? Which again progressively comes to another question, what is the church? Now, where Gateway is concerned, and I've been worshiping, worshiping with you for quite some time, even long before my wife died because of Karen. And I know somewhat about your church, and maybe you could tell me, no offense, well, Gateway exists to 
take care of. Now this is, I'm only saying it and then going to leave it aside and go, well, I'll say this later on. You might have several reasons as to why Gateway exists. We do benevolence. Not enough. We comfort people, take care of the lonely, not enough. We have to go back to the Word of God and see why the Lord God instituted this glorious entity made up solely, S-O-L-E-Y, solely of people and not buildings or ideas or philosophies or politics. It's made up of a special kind of people. A definition that I like was from a man who taught me a lot in my younger days, teen days actually. The church is the automatic fellowship of obedient believers. Well, as I read recently, and this is a quotation, the church is the mirror that reflects the whole, I love the word that follows, the whole effulgence of the divine image or of the divine character. The church, in other words, if I could take that latter definition, is to reflect who God is. And that brings me to the next gateway question. Do people see God in gateway? Let's go to the Bible now and see what the Bible says about the church and um, go back, all the way back to creation, all the way back to pre-creation. First and foremost, our God is a communal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Oh yes, don't misunderstand me, I'm a firm believer in the Trinity of the Lord God, but, but, if we look at it theologically correctly, he is one God, absolutely, but he's one God the Father, he's one God the Son, and he's one God the Holy Spirit. He is a communal God. That is why a lot of my students, wherever I teach, when I ask them, uh, why did God create man? Oh, to, so that God could have fellowship with man, wrong. There's enough fellowship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The purpose of creation is more than that. But God, being a communal God, when he decided that he will create beings like him in the image of God, he created them in and as community. Genesis 1, by the way, my style, I'll paraphrase most of the scriptures. That helps the light problem as well, you know, moves us along far, uh, faster. Genesis 1.26 tells us very clearly, and God created, right in the beginning, doesn't make any distinction, God created a male and female. And almost immediately he told them something which has an impact on evangelism. Be fruitful and multiply. And from that community he created, the initial community of Adam and Eve, from that, God went very quickly into creating, or rather, choosing a man to head up what I am calling this morning the clan of God, the tribe of God. More general, the people of God. And God set up that community later on 
through this man called Abraham, Abraham, Abraham later on. And from Abraham flowed this clan I'm talking about that we call the children of Israel and gave them a purpose. Now that purpose for Israel's existence has been grossly misunderstood. Who explains this very well is N.T. Wright. Read Romans a lot again, especially those first few chapters. God did not create the community of Israel just to have a people that he could say, these are my favorite people. These are my special people. Even though the word chosen is there, God did not say, I'm going to choose them and ah, we are going to be different from everybody around us. They were different. But the purpose for the creation of Israel was totally beyond all of that. And you and I are involved in that. Because God chose this man, Abraham, and right at the beginning of choosing him, Genesis 18, 22, Genesis 22, eight, uh, Genesis 18, 18, Genesis 22, 18, I'm not reading it. Many, many other scriptures. God said, <coughs> in 22 it says this, chapter 22, because you have obeyed me, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. The foundation for evangelism began in the Garden of Eden because God wanted a community and developed through the children of Israel that would eventually come into the creation of the church. So let's go back to creation. When God created Adam and Eve, one of the first commands, really the first command that he gave them was, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, be fruitful and multiply so that there will be an increase of God people, image of God people. When that command was given, sin had not yet entered the world. When God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, he had not uh, Adam and Eve had not yet faced that evil one called Satan or Satan or Shaitan, as some of the religions say. They were God's people. Now put that into that first command. Be fruitful and multiply, multiply and produce what? Produce more like you, God people, more God people, more Adam and Eve people who could walk with God and talk with God. That was the intention of that being fruitful and multiply. Of course, that plan was thwarted by evil. Satan comes along and uh, incidentally first started with Eve for some reason or the other. Paul even mentioned this, don't forget, he started with Eve and Eve was tempted and then Adam followed and the human race was plunged and plagued with a tendency to sin that we call a corrupt nature. And uh, as a result of that, the purpose that God intended for the God people, who eventually became the children of Israel, that purpose was not fulfilled. But God kept that purpose alive through, again, chosen ones 
who were close to him, who like in the beginning Abraham, where it was said, because you obeyed God, God went through people who obeyed him. In spite of their weaknesses and failures, through Isaac and Jacob, eventually through the man called David, who was called the man after God's own heart, all the way coming down to Jesus. And Jesus, I'm going to go a little faster now, and Jesus comes to the place where he tells us, I have come, I have died for you. I have set things right. There's a recreation that's taken place through my blood. Now I could once again set on the task of God people increasing. And so what does Matthew 28, 19 and 20 tells us? Summing it up, I'll read it later on or quote it later on. Summing it up, Jesus tells us, be fruitful and multiply. Where did you first hear that? Garden of Eden. Where did you next hear that? Jesus' last command. Make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Summing it up from the garden down through the corridors of time, the plan comes and God says, be fruitful and multiply. And the church was the results, was the result. Look again at Jesus. This time he's in the house of a man called Zacchaeus, noted for his lack of height. You know the rest of the story, I won't go in. But Zacchaeus ends up believing in God, having faith in Jesus Christ, not reading it, just paraphrasing it. In Luke chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, it simply says, Jesus makes an astounding statement about Zacchaeus. This is the true son of Abraham. And he combines it with the next verse which says, for I came, he doesn't say I, for the son of man has come to what, what? Seek and to save the lost. You see, the coupling there we sometimes forget. Zacchaeus was a Jew. He wasn't a Gentile. What does Jesus say? A true son of Abraham. Because now, now, the God people that was originally Adam and Eve are God people through faith. As exemplified by Zacchaeus, through faith. And that faith was through the cross of Jesus Christ because Jesus said, that's why I came to set this up. This God people of faith. I came to seek and to save the lost. Can you find a better definition of evangelism? Seeking and saving the lost. Seeking. Searching. Not just waiting. Not just doing good. In this I am going to share with you a, a little bit of wrong hermeneutics. I teach hermeneutics, used to. I've heard people say, see, what we do as a church is we lift up Jesus. And he draws all people to him. That's some of the worst kind of hermeneutics. Totally wrong biblical illustration because that statement refers to 
If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. And he was lifted up on the cross of Calvary. Who am I to lift up Jesus to draw all men? No, he does that. Go into the Greek and you'll get what I'm saying. But we say, no, 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 we, we, we don't. See, another wrong quotation or rather wrong interpretation. See, the father didn't run after the son. He waited for the son to come back, the prodigal son. Misinterpretation of a parable because the main emphasis there is the forgiveness. Or I'll uh, uh, throw in uh, maybe uh, uh, one more. Little touchy here. Glorify uh, let your good works glorify your Father who is in heaven. So my benevolence, and sorry, I, I love Joppa. Forgive me for saying this, your Joppa. Our little get-togethers, yeah, they glorify God. But the question that I ask in hermeneutics is this. Does it save people? They glorify God. The Hindu glorifies God when he asks me to pray for his child and his child is healed. The Hindu glorifies God when he sees a miracle. But they do not go further in proclaiming Jesus is Lord. See, there's a difference. So, the seeking, that's what Jesus came to do, the searching to save the lost. Uh, let me go back to Jesus one more time. And this is John chapter three. A man called Nicodemus comes uh, middle of the night, all that you know why, you've heard it many times. Member of the Sanhedrin, lawyer, scholar, influential probably, rich probably, does not want his name uh, tarnished, so he comes at night probably again. Let me not judge him. Not much is said as to the great intentions of Nicodemus, except he comes and says, Lord, I know who you are. You're a great teacher. You're a great rabbi. And we don't know what else went on, but Jesus plunges into something, probably looking at the need of his heart, which was lostness. And he says, except a man be born again. He cannot, I emphasize, he cannot see the kingdom of God. A verse later, verse 5, he goes in a different way. Except a man be born again, he can, or he amplifies it, except a man be born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I know there are interpretations of water and spirit. I could go into the hermeneutics of it, of double metaphors. If water is a metaphor, then spirit has to be a metaphor because of the conjunction. All of that, never mind. I leave that out totally. But you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Unless you are born of water and the spirit. First he says you cannot even see the kingdom of God. But then he amplifies it, Jesus' words now, not even Paul. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now look at the prefix to these verses. Look at the prefix, unless. Like an ultimate prefix. Unless, except, 
being redundant, I'm going to say no exceptions. Except no exceptions. No excuses. No substitutes. All our religious worries and all our religious niceties, all our Jesus-oriented get-togethers, sorry about the language, cannot get a man into the kingdom. All that we do in niceties, in comfort and encouragement and in upliftment, comforting the lost, I, I mean physically lost, Jesus' words, and I go by that in the face of, of what my translator said, arrest, unless, except a man is born again, he will not be in the kingdom of God. Now look at that progression. Born again through Jesus, through faith in Jesus, through obedience in Jesus, leads one into the kingdom, and the kingdom of God on earth is made up of those people of God who have been born again, the church. You cannot get into God's church without being saved. Acts chapter two, the last verse, just the part B of that last verse, and the Lord, King James Version, and the Lord adds to the church daily those who are being saved. Though they are being saved, how does a church grow through salvation? But then, Paul comes along and hears Jesus' words so precise and so succinct, except a man be born again, he's not going to get into the church. But Paul comes in and throws a spanner into the works in what was read a little while ago in Romans chapter 10 with a series of questions. Oh, very good, except a man be born again, very, very good, but how can they respond if they've not heard? And brethren, I want to tell you this, and I want it to weigh heavy on your hearts. I've been to 31 countries. I didn't preach in all of them, no, no. I've preached far and wide because I believe God has called me. Met people who have not Heard. Who is responsible? Guyana, where I'm scheduled to go later this year, probably won't make it. Went to a town and a local preacher who invited me. He was, for purposes of distinction, I'll say he was black. His name was Leslie, great guy. He said, uh, Leonard, he said, I've arranged a meeting in a town that is all Hindu. A lot of people don't know their world. And... 40% of Guyana is Hindu. 60% of Suriname is Hindu with their mandirs and temples and flags. Not very far from you. So he said, we have arranged a two-day meeting in this other town. It is all Hindu, manipulated by the rich Hindus. They don't let anybody else buy, uh, uh, buy a land, uh, estate. And so, only two days, he said, I got permission. They had hired the school grounds for the meeting. And then he says, when we got there, we were in the pavilion, sports ground. He said, I want to tell you something. He said, you won't have an audience. I said, wait, wait, wait. You arranged the meeting? Yeah. The choir's behind me. Great calypso-type music. And he said, no audience? 
I said, no, and he said, no. He said, these are Hindus, they won't come. I said, then why did, Leslie, why did you bring me here? He said, because they'll be listening. See these speakers, huge speakers that they had hired. And he said, when the shadows begin, you'll see them putting their chairs and stools and benches in their yards. They will listen. And then when it became dark, I began to see the shadows come out of people listening. But together with that, the mosquitoes came out. Mosquitoes were so big. I come from a country where there's mosquitoes, but these were big. He said, don't worry, sir. He says, I brought an ointment for you. And he gave it to me rub all, to rub all over. It was so odorous that it frightened the mosquitoes away. <laughs> I told Leslie, I said, Leslie, I said, this will frighten elephants. And then I began to preach in the dark, like my preaching, nobody in front of me, blackness. And Leonard Thompson is going great guns, waving his hands and legs. I preach from the book of Acts where it says, the God you don't know about, I'm going to tell you who he is. Next day, same message. I went 45 minutes or more with nobody in front of me. I go back to India and Leslie sends me a message two weeks later, he said, Brother Leonard, I went through that town with my friends. We ended up baptizing eight people. There are people who are waiting to hear, but who do not hear. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 10. He says, how can they respond if they've not heard? You give an answer. He goes further. How can they hear if there's no preacher, no proclaimer, no speaker? No friend to tell them. Give an answer. How can they hear without being sent? And oh my, 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 now my Paul is not referring to being sent to dig wells and to tie bandages and to teach the three R's, and I'm all for that. I'm a trustee of a leprosy and AIDS hospital in India. I've tied bandages for, no, I'm not condemning it. But how can they hear the gospel without somebody being sent to proclaim that gospel to them? How can they hear without being sent? And the answer is, Paul gives it himself, that same book of Romans. Who is responsible? The new Israel is responsible. The new God people from the day of creation, the new God people are responsible. The old Israel failed. And when the new Israel proclaims loudly, the new Israel proclaims politically incorrect preaching, socially incorrect, when the new, idea, new Israel proclaims loudly, hear, O nations, the Lord our God is one, or hear my people, listen to me, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Then people hear. Then people respond. Who is responsible for that? The new Israel. The church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, I'll try to speed up. I'll try. Now gateway. Des Moines is waiting. They searched the net and they find a beautiful website for Gateway. And they come, not a criticism, no, 
I'm a preacher. Who is this gateway? What is this gateway? Is there any connection between gateway and those people walking, what's it, Grand Avenue? Or when I drive almost every day to Eric and recording, MLK, whatever that is, what's your connection with them? Who are those who work with you in your factories or in your offices? Do they know Jesus? What were the teenagers filling your bags at Hy-Vee? Just think, I'm not asking you to say anything, just make, when you go back to Hy-Vee, just think, this guy, this kid, this kid, will he go to heaven or will he go to hell? You know this kid? I might be the only God-man. I might be the only God-people person that he will ever meet in his life. What about those that come visit you? What about relatives? Please bear with me, my friend. I'm not being critical. This is my style of preaching. And this next statement, I want you to take it in the correct light. I told Tom, and Tom was talking about this message with me last Sunday. He said, I said, Tom, my style, no punches being pulled, he said, gave me full authority to do that. Here's my next statement. You don't just exist. The word may not be um, even uh, grammatically correct and so on. You do not exist for disgruntled church folk from other churches to find a place because they will remain disgruntled and there's no such word I found out, but I'm using it. And disgruntledness produces disgruntledness. I am talking from over half a century of experience. I was a minister preacher in the Philippines for five years. I taught at Rosa Christian College. I'm pulling weight now for 10 years. And I'm talking to this a dissident unless he is reborn twice born, a dissident will always remain a dissident. It'll hurt you. Sorry about that, but Jim told me to preach on evangelism. My brethren and my friends here, I like you. I come here regularly. You've given me the privilege of preaching, but I want to propose to you the only way to fill these chairs, whatever you call them, to me, they're too close to each other. <laughs> the only way to fill these chairs is bring them in from the lost. You know that old song? Very old. Bring them in from the fields of sin. And gateway, the world is waiting for you. Here in Des Moines, I asked my daughter, we were driving down, and here was the senior couple, could have been older than me, going along with the necess necessary physical exercise, and I asked, in my stupidity, why aren't they going to church? And she told me this in her wisdom, you know she's got more wisdom than me, and she told me, Dad, some time ago it was the young generation that didn't go to church, now it's all generations. 
I'm going to put it another way. You know why that couple, whoever they are, wherever they were, didn't go to church? They're waiting for Gateway to invite them. Oh, am I getting, what should I say, bringing this guilt trip on? I walk. Well, I've not done it for a long time. But when I used to walk regularly, and when I do walk now, it's a habit I develop from somebody else. As I pass a stranger, pray for his salvation. I don't know who he is. I don't know the result. But I am responsible. And if you don't, I ask you to give the answer. But then somebody says, but what about us? We've got to stabilize ourselves first. We've got to grow. We've got to become strong. What about encouragement? What about fellowship? So on and on. And the answer to that, my friend, is that goes hand in hand with winning the lost. For without your own faith, growing and being strong, then you're not going to be old. In other words, what you get here in your fellowship, in your Sunday school classes, in the preaching from the pulpit, in your gatherings and homes, what you get should be the means, we call it edification, which is part of the purpose of the church. That edification must have as its purpose and goal, not a selfish, let me grow in Jesus Christ, but let me grow in Jesus Christ to reach out to others. That's why I've changed the stickers on bumpers, car bumpers, God bless America. I told my students at Ozark, add to that. God bless America so that America could bless the world. Not just bless you, bless you to bless the rest of us who die without Jesus. And so, I'm going to ask, as I close now, for you to consider seriously at your task, and there's so much more in evangelism, so very, very, very much more. Remembering who you are, Gateway, you have the message. No doubt about that. You've got the gospel given to you. What a privilege every Sunday standing up in a public hall like this, not having one say, you know, you might be arrested today. The TV studio I used the last day before coming to the United States, the director came to me, young fellow, and he called me uncle out of respect, and he said, uncle, he said, every day I get up in fear that this will be the day the government will pull our license and we'll have to stop broadcasting. That's the world. You don't have that problem. You've got this great privilege. You've got the gospel. You've got the message. You've got the answer. But you are expected to use it. One last why. I'll give you three answers and then I'll get down. First answer it is, you're commanded. I didn't emphasize this much. There's so much more. But let's end now. First of all, you are commanded. That great commission which we call 
mentioned five different times in different ways, most comprehensive in Matthew chapter 28, prefaced by the words, all authority is given unto me. I'm the new Jesus now. I was crucified and killed. I was dead. I was buried like the apostolic and the Athanasian creed so easily, so beautifully tells us. But I rose again from the dead. Therefore, all authority in heaven and on earth is given me going to all the world, going to all the world. And that, in the book of Acts, paraphrasing again, when they asked Jesus just before he ascended into heaven, defying the laws of gravity, he uh, was asked, Lord, are you now going to tell us, etc., etc., about the kingdom? No, no, no. He said, first, wait for power to come upon you so that you could be my witnesses. Handful of people, brand new church. Didn't they need to be edified first? Didn't they need to grow? Didn't they need to establish something first in Jerusalem? He said, no. Beginning in Jerusalem, then all of Judea, then all of Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Matthew, Peter, John, James. Don't stick in Jerusalem. And Paul traveled the whole world. The apostle Thomas, I teach and I believe, came to India and died there, speared to death, as they say, in my city. Enough circumstantial evidence for it to be true. Why did they not stick to Jerusalem? No, the commission was, don't limit yourselves. Commanded. It's a mandate. It's not an option. Don't forget where commands of Jesus are given. Jesus said it this way. If you love me, don't simply say, I love you, daddy. I love you, mommy. I love... My parents would say, then why don't you do what I say? If you love me, keep my commandments. But there's more than that. Why are you expected to use what you have, that gospel? It's a mandate. It's imperative. No exceptions. You have to obey the command. Secondly, you should have a love for the lost. Do you care? What about the words, love your neighbor as yourself or as one, not translation, as one uh, interpretation said, love your neighbor in spite of yourself. That's why Jesus came. Old song I learned in, uh, when I was a little kid, like these kids we saw, he did not come to judge the world. He did not come to blame. He did not only come to seek. He was to save, he came. And when we call him savior, we call him by his name. Moreover, he not only came to seek and to save the lost, he died. So great was his concern that he died. So great was Paul's concern for the Jews to come to Jesus Christ to forget the old law and be dependent on it that he said, Lord, let me be anathema. I cannot understand this. Hermeneutics is not enough. Let me be anathema. Let me be accursed so that my people could come to you, Lord. Lord, let me go to hell. Maybe that's not the right interpretation, but look at the passion. Love for the lost, my friend, is not being goody-goody to them and saying, yeah, Lord, bless all the missionaries, bless all the lost. No, it is a passion. Like John Knox's favorite prayer, Lord, give me Scotland or I die. My wife, late wife, if she was alive, she'll testify to this. 
used to travel a lot by train, take the express trains from Chennai, where I live, to New Delhi, 30 plus hours, fast trains. And so we'll run through all the little platforms and stations where it won't stop, and we'll fly by. And those railway stations will be filled with hundreds of people. And the thought would always flash in my mind, I'm not exaggerating, even today, she would testify to this. Have they heard of Jesus? Where are they bound? What is their eternal destiny? And I've been known, she would testify, to cry because of this. What is your passion for? Love is a word that is so uh, becoming insipid now. But let us have a passion for the lost. By the way, you'll be surprised at the results when you exercise that passion. I'll go quickly on now to the last. Why should Gateway use what it's got, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Very simple, biological answer here, biblical as well. You either evangelize brethren or you die. Very simple as that. Because the God-ordained plan of growth, church growth and all that plan, I know about E1, E2 conversions, I know about biological growth and so on, but ultimately, the biblical system of church growth is bring in the lost. I'm not talking about methodology. No, that's all varies. No uh, tampering with that. But very simply, no evangelism, no growth. You don't like that? All right, I'll modify it. No evangelism, no real growth. You could fill these chairs bringing in the lost. And so, we evangelize or we die. That's the reproduction principle. A man and a woman have no children, and they're the last names in their family. Once they both pass away, that family ceases to exist. Reproduce in the church or you die. And let me quickly finish. This task, my friend, is not just of the elders. Oh, the Bible says a lot about elders, by the way. It's not just a task of a special, let's be redundant, task force. Oh, yeah, all that. You have all of that, fine. But biblically speaking, this is the task of every person. Every John, if there's a John here. Every James, if it's a James here. Every Leonard, that's me and any other Leonards here. It's our task. Every individual. And you say, but I cannot. The famous Sri Lankan preacher D.T. Nile said, evangelism is, and you can do this, one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. I can do that. I could tell you where the soup kitchen is. I could tell you where the line begins. I could do that. You can do that. You can tell people, look at the cross. That's Jesus dying for you. He wants you in his church, his kingdom. And this is definitely final. I've said that many times. 
on October 21st, 1805, the great battle of Trafalgar was about to begin. Napoleon had been victorious on land and boasted, if I'm master of the English Channel for two hours, he said this, for two hours, I'll rule England. If I rule England, I'll rule all of Europe. If I rule all of Europe, I'll rule the world. His dream, the dream of Napoleon. And the only man who could stop him was Admiral Lord Nelson, who pondered and wondered, with our less than superior forces, they were superior on, by virtue of fighting on water, but how can we go against this whole Armada of Napoleons. And as the day dawned, he called his, what uh, we say lieutenant and you say lieutenant or something like that, he called him Pasco by name and he said, I want you to put up this message on the flags, the way of communication. And it was, England expects, no, he said, England confides in every man to do his duty. And Pasco said, sir, sir, he said, let's make it a common word, accept. Leave this, rest out and say, early morning as every jack tar in the British Navy, every sailor in the British Navy looked up to the Admiral's ship, HMS Victory, in the flags it waved. England expects every man to do his duty. And the battle began. The cannons rode across the waves of the English Channel. Smoke engulfed the ships. Ships were going down, being sunk. Napoleon was becoming victorious. And a cannonball got Lord Admiral Nelson in the chest. And he lay down dying. And word spread through the English Navy. Nelson is dying. Nelson is dying. They began to wane in spirit. Our leader's gone. Our great victorious leader is gone. And the battle began to turn against the English Navy. And then somebody pointed, look at Nelson's ship. And there the flags were still waving. England expects every man to do his duty. Gateway Church, God expects you to fulfill your duty. This has been another episode of the Gateway Church Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.